Welcome to Ticket to Fly, the USA Nordic podcast, bringing you news and features from the world of ski jumping and Nordic combined. I'm Tom Kelly, and we're happy to have you join us for this episode coming up next with host Peter Graves. USA Nordic has a heritage of success, and at the core of its most successful period in history is Steamboat Springs native Johnny Spillane. Johnny grew up in the shadow of Howelson Hill, and in 2003, he made history winning World Championship gold in Nordic combined. He would go on to win three Olympic silver medals in 2010. Today, Johnny still makes Steamboat his home. He has turned his passion for fly fishing into a thriving business and is raising his own family in his old hometown. He's also become one of the most informative of NBC commentators calling the action in both ski jumping and Nordic combined. In this edition of Ticket to Fly, host Peter Graves has a fascinating conversation with Johnny, going back to relive those historic moments and getting his perspective on the sport today. Let's listen in as Ticket to Fly host Peter Graves talks with Olympic medalist and world champion, Johnny Spillane. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Ticket to Fly, USA Nordic's weekly magazine of news and features. And today we're very happy to have with us Johnny Spillane, who joins us from his home or office from Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And we've got a lot of ground to cover. But uh, Johnny, first of all, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to see you guys. It's great to see you. It's been far too long uh you retired in 2013 and i, I want to talk about your career and then uh, a little bit about ski jumping in general the season that has just about uh concluded um a very special time period in vancouver and all of that sort of thing so um here we go um growing up in steamboat you did not grow up i i believe not very far from the ski jumps there uh which are uh, have inspired, I think, generations of kids. What was your story, uh, Johnny, and how you uh, uh, developed your interest in ski jumping? Well, as you said, ski jumping um, in Nordic Combined is a kind of a fixture here in Steamboat. The jumps are right downtown on a you know, historic Helson Hill. And I think it's something that every kid tries at some point, you know, and, and uh, for me, it was just kind of grew up um, admiring other ski jumpers and Nordic combined athletes and um, had the opportunity to be around them down at Hallison and kind of see what they were doing, other Olympians. And so for me, it, it was quite easy to get into. Yeah. And uh, uh, did you find when, when you were a little kid, did, did you, uh, were you one of those guys who uh, could kind of do any sport that you wanted or I mean were, did you play baseball or football or soccer or any of those things did you feel I know it's a funny question asking an Olympic medalist that they felt like a natural athlete uh, obviously you did later on in your career but what I'm talking about was when you were when you were a little kid and uh, formulating what sports you might do and stuff yeah I mean I think I always had um, natural athletic ability I was a pretty good baseball player 
Um, so I, I did do other sports, um, but I, I wasn't like that good from a young age. So I always I had to, I had a lot of dedication and um, grit, I guess, and had to really kind of work for it when I was younger, especially. Was there a particular coach, either for cross country or jumping, that kind of took you under their wing and mentored you? Um, probably Gary Crawford would be the first one that would come to mind. Gary was always a, a great coach and he, he made it fun for me. I, I would get so stressed out as a younger athlete when I didn't, uh, do as well as I thought I could do. And Gary, Gary kept it fun for me. As you look at that progression around what time do you think you, uh, thought, yeah, I, I'm really, I have Olympic dreams now. Yeah, I was probably 14 or 15, I guess. I think I, I think when I was 15, I might be getting my dates wrong a little bit, but I think I won junior nationals for both jumping and Nordic combined. And it was kind of at that point, I thought, okay, maybe there's something, you know, maybe this could go somewhere. Indeed, it did go somewhere. It's <laughs> pretty, pretty amazing. I think, you know, having been at Steamboat quite a bit over my, my life, you know, yes, you, you notice it when you look at the ski history at the Hill, but always when you go up in the, uh, Olympian Hall or the Hall of Champions upstairs there. And you see all the people from that area that either lived there and trained there or that grew up there. And it's it's pretty in, pretty impressive. Uh, there's such a, a, a milieu of 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 excellence in in the ski sport there, isn't there? Yeah, there really is. And I think a lot of it comes from, you know, from the Winter Sports Club and, and their ability over the years to have fantastic coaching. I think almost every sport here, whether it's, you know, Alpine or ski jumping or whatever it is, um, everybody's being coached by someone who's been to the Olympics. And I think that's pretty unique and it provides a, an atmosphere for kids from a, a very young age to think, you know, if I, if I give it my all here, this is certainly possible. I'm not sure what year you made the national team. Do you, do you recall what year that was? Yeah, it was, um, well, it depends on what you would consider the national team. I think that I made the U.S. development team in 1996. Uh, so I would have been 15 at the time. And then I think actually on the national team, I was probably 16 or 17. And at that time, was Tom Stites the coach or, or was someone else the coach then? No, it was Tom. Okay. So you spent a lot of your years working with Tom and, and then later with Dave, right? Yep. Yep. With Tom for a long time. And then uh, Board Eldon was the head coach after that. That's right. And then, um, from Board, it went to, to DJ. One of the first, I mean, huge international steps was, it was quite some time ago now when I look back with Val de Fieme, uh 7.5K sprint, uh, a breakthrough for you and also a breakthrough for the country. And I mean, when I was racing at Fort Lewis and Durango, there were a lot of Nordic combined guys there, Jimmy and Pat Miller, Mike DeVecca, just to mention a few. And, and a lot of those guys had make breakthroughs. I don't think there was really a world cup then, you know, they went to Holman Cullen or Fallon or Lati, but, but they made some breakthroughs on their own, but nobody larger than you, when you got to Val de Fiume in, in 2003, when you became world champion, what was that like? I mean, Johnny, in any way, did you surprise yourself or, or had that year or two prior set the stage for Val de Fiume and the gold medal there? Well, I think, um, it, it was a little bit surprising, but not, um, 
I, I thought a po- I had more realistic aspirations for a podium finish. I didn't know. I didn't think winning was, I don't want to say it wasn't possible, but it wasn't at the top of my radar. My goal was to try and get on the podium. I had been skiing really well that whole season and certainly knew there was a shot. Um, once we actually got into the race itself, um, I started thinking, okay, we're going to go for the win here because I, I, I was in a good position after the jumping. Uh, our wax text did a great job. I had great skis that day. And then, you know, it was a, a culmination of a, a lot of years of work, even though I was still relatively young. Um, we had a good team. We had, a, you know, myself, Todd was still skiing very well. Uh, Bill DeMong. We, we had a good, really solid group of guys. And I think that we kept pushing each other and building off each other's success so well that it gave us, you know, that opportunity. And I was just fortunate to be the one to do it first. And of course, when you win that gold medal at a, at a world championships, it, it's confirmation that you have more than arrived. How did, uh, how did your process that first uh, really big win? Uh, <laughs> was it a mind jab a little bit? or, or, or I mean, it was a lot of fun to come back and share it with everybody that had played a role in it, I guess, really more than anything. It was a just fun to be a part of as a fun group of guys that were competing that year. And it was, it was nice to get again, confirmation that what we were doing was right, you know, cause we were able to win at the one event that everybody wanted to win that year. So it's, um, it's always challenging at the championships. You don't get that many opportunities and to be able to do it um, was fantastic. According to the research I've done, you were on uh, at least four Olympic teams, right? Or was there yeah. five? There? No, it was four. I was, uh, alternate in 98 and then competed in 02, 06 and 2010. And 98, I, I gather you didn't uh, compete there. Is that right? You were there uh, in case somebody got hurt or something, right? Yeah, yeah I was the, I was the backup in case somebody got sick. I mean, I was just 17 at the time. So uh, it was a, it was a good eye opening experience. I think more than anything, they wanted me to be on that team just to get the, the Olympic jitters out a little bit, I think. Yeah. Kind of see the big show and was, um, it was fun. It was probably the most fun Olympics that I had because I got to go to see other sports and do other things and experience what it's all about. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's a, a really good thing and it, and it turned out really well. Uh, just covering a little ground. I mean, Salt Lake 2002, as I recall doing the PA announcing for the cross country there then, by 2002, when you guys got to Soldier Hollow and, and the jumps at UOP, um, there were some real expectations on you guys then, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that we were certainly in the conversation for medals in the team event. And we jumped to, I can't remember what place we jumped to, but like third or fourth. And on paper, we were quite a bit faster than the other guys. And going into the race, I think all of us thought, realistically, we weren't going to catch up to Norway, but realistically, silver medal was what we were hoping for after the jumping. And we got just got unlucky. We had really bad skis that day and really mm-hmm. just didn't have a chance right from the very beginning. And it was pretty obvious right away that it was going to be a, a long race for everybody. And like I said, unfortunately, we ended up fourth. Pr- pretty disappointing. You know, that was the big goal was to get that medal at the home Olympics and uh, weren't able to do it. If we fast forward from there to to Vancouver, and, and I remember a journalist called me from pre-Olympics Vancouver and, and I mean, you guys had been skiing and winning and doing very well, you know, pre-Vancouver and, and maybe for the year or two even before it. And 
it's it's something that I, I do want to remind myself to ask you a little bit about the magnitude of those Steamboat World Cups. But so this guy called me and he said, you know, uh, among other things, you know, he talked about cross country and he talked about Nordic combined. And, and I said to him, I just about guarantee you a medal for the U.S. team in Nordic combined. I, I, I said, I'm not sure what color it will be, but I would be extremely surprised if we didn't walk away with a medal or two. And I, I mean, certainly you guys uh, bore me out on that. If you look at team dynamics, and these were guys you uh, largely that you grew up with, if not that, that you had been together with a great deal. I, I should think that that environment, and you can talk about uh, Steitzy or, or, or no, at that point it was Dave Jarrett, um, but what was the vibe like? I, I would think it would be energized, like you guys were a balloon ready to just pop, you know? Yeah, I mean, we were we were all, like you said, energized, very excited about it. And I think we went into it knowing, at least I went into it knowing that, you know, this was as good a chance as I was ever going to have. I was skiing at a very high level all winter long. I was feeling really good going into it, skiing really well, um, leading up to it, and just had a lot of confidence. And I think the big difference was we went into it knowing that we didn't have to have our best day to still have a chance. You know, it's one thing to go in and be like, okay, if everything goes right today, maybe I've got a shot. It's another thing to go in and say, if I just do what I've been doing, I've got a shot. And for me, and I think for the rest of the team, being able to get the medal in the first event really made everyone relax that much more because now it's like, phew, okay, um, we, we've got one. And so now, right. you know, let's focus on the next two events. But really, I, I felt like the pressure was kind of off after that. I felt like it was like, okay, let's just go enjoy ourselves. And um, we were able to do really well. I mean, the team event was was great. That's another one where, you know, I, I think had we not missed the wax uh, or the condition, I don't want to say not miss the wax because um, the, the condition changed in the middle of the race. Mm-hmm. And the, the other teams that are were a little bit better funded, had the ability to adjust accordingly where we didn't. Um, and so like, you know, Bill and his last leg in the team event had virtually no chance. The skis were so slow. Um, but I think had that not been the case, I think we probably would have won the team event. And then going into the last, uh, the large shell individual, same thing, just, you know, felt really good going into it, felt really comfortable with everything. And, you know, Bill and I were able to Bill was able to win and I was able to get another silver. So it was overall a um, wonderful experience and, um, you know, everything just kind of lined up correctly. And, I mean, you, you end up with three silver medals, right? Yep. Yeah. No, it uh, went about, about as good as it could have gone. I, I can't believe. Yeah. It was, it was so exciting doing the PA there. I mean, you know, yeah, of course, you were focused on the races, but we were standing up in the booth up there. And, you know, as as an American, it was just unbelievably special. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, it that magic where where everybody was at the right place at the right time and mm-hmm. even young uh, Camerata, he really he stepped up in an unbelievable way, too, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, he was jumping really good that whole season also. And. I mean, his cross country was what it was, but um, did a did a fantastic job in the race in the team event. And you know, between Bill and Todd and myself, I think I might be wrong on this, but I think all three of us had won World Cups that year, and we just had 
a, a tremendous amount of confidence going into it. So uh, I'm going to back up and ask you about uh, those those early Steamboat World Cups. I mean, they were super exciting, not only because we were doing well, but also because the town just embraced it in a big time way. Those racer uh, races uh, cross country start and finish in the what do you call it the horse rodeo uh, grounds there rodeo grounds yeah um and of course you remember that and and those also uh, as as you know Johnny those are not cheap to put on but everybody from the ski team giving money to all that steamboat uh did and all that i mean it, i always thought looking back those were like an investment in you, in your future, your, you guys future, you know, and it was, uh, so, uh, tell me, uh, uh, world cups at home, that was pretty special and, and probably fit into the, the overall vision uh, of you guys moving towards Olympic medals, right? Yeah, I think so. And for me, I mean, honestly, I remember the ones that I didn't compete in more than I remember the ones that I did compete in. Because the, the ones where you didn't compete, like when I was a younger kid and they first started having the World Cups here, all of a sudden you're seen in person and being around all these guys that you've only ever heard about or seen on TV. And yeah. all of a sudden they're, you know, you're four jumping for them and you're seeing them at the top of the hill and seeing how they, they act and what they do on competition day. So for me, it was probably more important the ones that I didn't compete in as far as um, my career later on. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was special. And and do you feel like the coaches created and, and, and got you to the starting gate with, with a very kind of positive mindset about uh, uh, preparation and, and getting into the gate, as I say? Yeah. I mean, we, over the course of my career, I had wonderful coaches. Um, I, I never had a bad coach and that's, you know, not everybody can say that. Yeah. Um, so I, I had just great guys who were, truly cared and were passionate about your success. And I think that that for me made a huge difference. You know, when, when they want to win as bad as you want to win and they do everything in their power to put you in a position to succeed. I mean, you can't ask for more than that. I seem to remember I, I, I was at your awards uh, ceremonies for a number of the medals. One of the images I have is seeing a picture of uh, as as you probably remember, Paul Robbins and I were very very close. Yeah, and I remember being super touched by you guys having his Scottish beret out there. Do you remember that a bit? I remember it very well. I you know we all miss him and uh, yeah, such a great guy and yeah, he held it with me on the podium all three times. <laughs> oh, and and he had a special affection for you guys. I mean, he, he like me out there was at a lot of, of, of your events and interviewed you a lot and stuff and uh, just was a special guy. And I, I thought that, that you did that uh, to honor him was not only really classy, but, but even more, it was really heartfelt. And uh, I, I thought, boy, would he love that? Yeah, I mean, he was just a great friend, um, and you know, gone gone too early, unfortunately. But you know, now working with NBC, I actually at the last Olympics uh, was able to work with his son, which was a lot of fun. DC, yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. So when you retired in 2013, did did you? F I, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing you felt ready, right? 
it was a very easy decision for me. It was, you know, I had two children at that point and, you know, spending 200 days a year on the road was, was not that much fun anymore. I wasn't going to new places. I wasn't seeing new things. I was competing against the same people I'd been competing with for ages. And, you know, between all the injuries I had over the course of my career and just having to spend so much time uh, rehabbing from those, I, I was pretty ready to be done. And it was, it was not a hard decision for me to make at all. And then from there up to now, did you stay involved in, in the sport? On uh, I, I, I want to talk TV separately, but were you doing stuff with, um, uh, with the sport? Or did you kind of make a, a, a kind of a clean break or no? It was a relatively clean break. I did do um, a decent amount of just volunteering down at the Winter Sports Club. And um, if time allowed, would still love to do more of it because I, I do enjoy it. Um, but I, I would follow the results. You know, I was keeping track because I still had great friends on the team. You know, I'm still watching what, you know, Bill DeMong is doing and some of the other guys. So I'd wake up every Saturday and Sunday and kind of watch the events and all that kind of stuff. But um, beyond that, I didn't have all that much more involvement. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about TV and then I want to talk about the world cup season too. Um, I don't know precisely what year, but I do know, I think that Pyeongchang 2018 was your first Olympic games, uh, as a commentator. Is that right? Yep. That's right. And now you're doing quite a bit of it. Uh, um, and, uh, tell me, uh, what it's like for you to be, behind the microphone because this is a shift for you right yeah no it's certainly it was an interesting uh, transition i think i did my first shows for them in 2015 or 2016 they called and see if i wanted to do the four hills tournament and so i did that and having no you know nobody gives you like any advice like on how to do it right so you just kind of and they're like, okay, start talking. And it's like, uh, <laughs> but um, at this point, I've done hundreds and hundreds of shows. Like last last season, we did every single men's and women's World Cup for ski jumping. Um, and it, it's fun. It's uh, I enjoy watching them and coming up with interesting things to say and doing the research behind the athletes and all that kind of stuff. It, it's interesting. I, I don't know. Have you learned certain lessons between when you started to now about uh, about presentation or that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, just learning when you don't have to talk, I think is important too. And the, the, this kind of the space in between, um, and then really establishing that, um, repertoire or, or what a familiar familiarity with, um, whoever you're working with becomes mm -hmm. super important. Um, and just all that kind of stuff. And the relationships I built through this has been, has been fun as well. Yeah. And of course, uh, uh, because I, I know Chad does some events live and he did them from Finland this year. I'm going to assume that you've been doing yours from your home in Colorado, right? Yeah, yeah, it's been fantastic. So last year I was having to fly to New York every single weekend. I'd fly there Friday and fly home Sunday. And I did that wow. November 15th or whenever the first world cup was through the end of March. And so, you know, that, that in itself is pretty exhausting, but this year they, um, sent me an entire kit here and I was able to set it up right in this office and then made my own, my own little studio and uh, worked out fantastic. And I, I think people who haven't worked in the business, I mean, uh, there are times when you're going live, right? I mean, uh, most of what you, we do is live. Most of what you do is live. Mm -hmm. and, and I always felt in an earlier time when, when I did live shows that, um, it made me a little bit nervous and that may have been me and my own insecurity, but, um, uh, do you respond, uh, 
pretty well to the rigors of live television? Uh, yeah, for me, it doesn't really bother me at all. Um, I actually like the live ones a lot better. I think there's more excitement in it. Um, I get more excited to do it because, you know, you kind of know what you're or you have no idea what you're getting into. Um, but the as opposed to a tape show where, you know, if you make a mistake, you can go back and redo it, which, you know, I'd rather just keep pushing forward. <laughs> it's a little like sport itself, isn't it? In a way. I mean, uh, uh, most good athletes, uh, I, I think in ski sports, uh, but in many sports, a lot of people like to be the guy that's uh, batting cleanup with the bases loaded, you know, with two outs. You know, they, they actually, that brings out the best in him. Uh, in a way, did, did you feel that way, like bring it on kind of? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, even like when you're talking about doing the Olympics and stuff like that, um, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I enjoyed, you know, watching the events and you know, it's easy. It's easy when you're the, the, the expert, you know, quote unquote expert there, because uh, you could say something wrong and nobody else is going to know it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, indeed. And you've had good, uh, the gentleman you're working with is is quite good. And, and I think he's done a very good job as host. Yeah. Um, so the guy I worked with the most has been Bill Spaulding. He's been fantastic. Um, super easy guy to work with. Uh, everybody that you work with in the businesses, they're, I mean, they're professionals. They, they know what they're doing and they're, their ability really impresses me, like what they can do and how they can, you know, take a producer, tell them, hey, you got 15 seconds and fill those 15 seconds and make it interesting. It's really impressive. Yeah, no, it, it really is. And, and you've done a really good job. I mean, a really good job. So uh, I've enjoyed what I've seen. Let me just ask you about the research, and that'll be a way to segue into talking about uh, the uh, World Cup season. Um, my guess is for any typical show you're putting, I, I, it's hard to quantify it by hours, but you're putting many hours up front in researching, aren't you? I mean, it could be five, could be 10. I don't know. But um, so uh, is that, is that the case for you? Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, really the most work comes at the beginning of the season when you have a bunch of guys you don't know about. Um, but then really I can, for each show, it takes me about 45 minutes just to update whatever information I had. You know, what what have you done for me lately type of stuff. But it, it's quite a bit of work. The, my goal, especially when we're doing live shows, is to have about three minutes worth of something to talk about on each person. So I figure generally we can, you know, you can fill in the rest from there. But uh, getting three minutes or so, is it's quite a bit of work when you're talking 45, 50 people on the start list. And do you have... Uh one or two go-to people that you might email or talk to over overseas and say, I know, you know, Pino has done that. I think with Alpine uh, who say, you know, what's the inside story happening at the venue today? Yeah, no, I definitely, I talk with uh, Bill DeMong quite a bit, yeah. Um, yeah. especially at the, at the major events. Cause he's always going to be there and, you know, he's my, one of my best friends. So that's pretty easy and a fun excuse for me to give him a call. Um, but yeah, we, I uh, talked to him. I'll talk to a couple other coaches that I'm still good friends with and try and, you know, really figure out what's happening at the venue. Well, that's cool. Um, so let's talk about the recently completed world cup season. Um, of course, in all ski disciplines, it COVID-19 makes it a season like none other we ever had. And, and you know, We've had on this program this year uh, 
a number of athletes. We had the Norwegian head coach. Uh, uh, we had McKenzie on uh, in the very early part of the season. And one of the things Mac talked about was the lack of, of crowd noise. As you know, I mean, I, I've been to Olympic jumping and I've been at Four Hills once. And I mean, the roar of the crowd is is just about deafening, you know, and I, I can't imagine what it's like to be up on the top of at Oberstdorf for wherever and just hear this mass of humanity cheering. Matt said it was he, he, he said it made jumping for him a little more cerebral. You know what I mean? It was it was a little bit otherworldly, maybe uh, this season in a way. Um and, and there were some marvelous attempts by organizers to, you know, have pictures of fans and seats and, and stuff like that. I, I thought that was really cool. But um, so uh, from the beginning, what was your take on this season? Well, I mean, it was like you said, it was without the crowds and stuff. It was it was almost eerie. Um, I remember last March when this all kind of came to a head, I was in New York and we were calling um the World Cups from Norway, and all of a sudden they said, "Okay, you know, tomorrow there's going to be no crowd allowed here." And you went from competitions where they're having 60,000 people to nobody, and these guys are jumping into these empty stadiums where it's just it. it, it the whole thing was just it was kind of strange. And then you know, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be an athlete and go from you know all these people to just nobody there. Um, I do think over the course of this year, the organizers. I mean, the amount of hoops you have to jump through to, to hold an event in a, a COVID situation is incredible. And the the way that they did it was, um, I mean, they were able to hold all the events. It was pretty impressive. I have to say, I completely agree. I mean, I think the organizers, um, a lot of them took tremendous financial hits. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, ticket sales being one of the most notable. Um, and you know, you know what crowds that are at Ensbrook, Bishopsofen and, and Garmish and stuff. Tell me, uh, this was the season we really got familiar with the Granerud of Norway and, uh, uh, long since now clinching the world cup title. But, uh, what was your take on him? What did you think about him as you were watching? Certainly at the beginning of the season, we're wondering, you know, is this going to be a fluke? Can he kind of keep it up? But throughout the course of the whole year, I mean, he just was so consistent and you had to feel bad for him. You know, he didn't win the two events he probably wanted to win. You know, he didn't win the Four Hills and then he wasn't even able to compete at World Championships with the positive COVID test. So had to feel bad for him from that standpoint. But man, I mean, when he was jumping at his best this year, he was dominant, head and shoulders above everybody else. And it was pretty you know, kind of out of nowhere a little bit and pretty impressive, but, you know, we saw the same thing from other athletes in the past. So it's um, not completely unusual, but. Yeah. And I mean, he'd been around, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, it wasn't like he was an unknown commodity, but when we talked to uh, his coach uh, during one of our programs this year, you know, uh, uh, I asked him what, what's happening that's different. And he said, you know, it's a question I've been asked a lot. He said, uh, uh, even he said, even Halvar couldn't say what he was doing differently. And that's to me, that's that's really interesting. You know, well, uh, to, to me, ski jumping is such a mental sport. I mean, it's, you know, golf is the closest thing I can compare it to mentally. And in, in golf, you know you can go out and hit a hundred balls at the driving range. If you don't have a, you know, like your swing or something, but ski jumping, you can't do that. You got to be 
in the right mindset. And when somebody gets that way, you know, you can see the, those sorts of successes. You know, Peter Preutz did it in 2016. Um, we've seen a couple other guys who they just get on a roll and all of a sudden it's like the sport, they don't really feel like they're doing anything differently. It just becomes easy all of a sudden. Well, he was he was definitely in the zone. And and the the analogy of golf is something we had Mike Holland on in one episode and and he's a pretty good golfer. And it's something that I said, you know what? A lot of you guys were golfers over the years, uh, you jumpers. And a lot of you were pretty darn good. And so I, I see the the mental connection of trying to be in the zone and, mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes you're like, Hey, heck, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing it right. So yeah, just, <laughs> just don't, don't mess it up. Yeah. Mess yeah. Up. And uh, what about Eisenbeekler? What, what was your take on him? Cause certainly he had moments, but he wasn't able to sustain it all the time. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, his technique is just so, He's so aggressive. I mean, he's, he's swinging for the fences. He's either going to go really far or he's just not going to go anywhere. And you can you can tell right on the takeoff if it's going to be a good jump or not. Like immediately you can see it. That he's got a kind of a, a telltale sign when he's going to jump far. Right when he comes off the end, his skis just hang a little bit longer than everybody else's. And that's when he jumps his furthest. And But when that doesn't go well for him, uh, he's, he's you know, maybe a top 20 jumper. But uh, Yeah, so, yeah. He's, he's obviously a brilliant jumper oh, yeah. when he's on. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, Johnny, what about the Austrians? I mean, there seemed to me a few years back there, uh, the sport was uh, theirs. Uh, and, and while they're, I mean, they were so dominant, but uh, not to say they haven't had, they've had universally poor results, but it doesn't strike me. They're quite as dominant as they might have been. I, I don't know. How about you assessing that? I think, you know, this year in particular was just incredibly difficult for them. I mean, right off the bat, they missed um, so much with, with injuries and then with COVID, basically the whole team testing positive for COVID and having to send the B teams to World Cups. You know, I, I think that when they're at their best, they're still just about as good as anybody else. They just don't seem to have the depth that they used to have. You know, it's not like they can just replace somebody with another guy who's going to be on, can be on the podium. So I think um, they, they certainly have some work to do, but they've still got great athletes and just a, a kind of an unfortunate season for them, really. Are there coaching changes that you've picked up on that are happening at the end of this season? Nothing next that I've heard of, heard of for next year yet. I mean, I think the big one was, you know, last year when uh, Stefan Horngacher went to the German team and obviously that worked out for them quite well as they won, you know, the team event at world championships. And then the Germans collectively as a group um, just seem to be getting better and better all the time right now. And it's not, they don't really have the one standout guy who's going to be winning the overall every year, but they've got three or four guys that could be at the podium at any given point, which is so important when you're, especially when you're talking about the sport on a, on a team level. And uh, I mean, I'd be remiss without talking a little bit more with you about the Norwegians, because I mean, although Granerud was, was uh, brilliantly dominant, um, Johansson, was very solid this season. And mm -hmm. there's another younger guy that's starting to come up now. So they're, they're getting some depth. Uh, yeah, they certainly are. And I think, you know, another team that was so in 2018 was just completely dominant there in Pyeongchang. And then they kind of fell off a, a little bit, but for the most part, 
you know, they seem to be able to just keep, keep bringing young guys up and plug them into the world cup. And all of a sudden there's, you know, they're on the podium the next thing, you know, so they're yeah. very deep uh, in Norway right now. And of course, uh, what's your take maybe with some bullet points on, on countries like Poland, which had a very good year, uh, Slovenia, for example, Finland. I mean, what's your take on some of those, those other squads? Yeah. I mean, Poland obviously is still one of the strongest teams. Um, they're going to be interesting to watch though, because as their guys are starting to get older, you know, Camille Stokes getting older, uh, who's been so good for so long, you're not really seeing as many of the younger guys coming onto the world cup and, and giving the older guys a run for their money. So we'll see what happens with Poland, you know, Finland, they've just, ever since Ahonen retired, just really haven't done anything. I mean, they, their development programs are, are not working the way they should be working, and they're having a hard time producing really top-end skiers, which is, you know, it's too bad for a country that's got such a long history in ski jumping. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, it's, sometimes that's perplexing to me, you know, because around the time of Matty Nukkonen, it wasn't just him. They had a really strong team. A oh, yeah. I mean, presence. In the two, early 2000s, they were arguably the best team that there was. So um, it's it's certainly uh, unfortunate to see, but at the same time, they're, they're going to have to figure it out. And what about some observations on the Nordic Combined World Cup? Well, obviously, they, they had a bit more of a struggle this year with, um, with COVID-related uh, travel and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, I think if you're a fan of Nordic combined and you're not paying attention, Jarl Magnus Reber could probably go down as the best Nordic combined skier ever. I mean, mm -hmm. he is so good. I um, mean, he, he's an unbelievable jumper. He's a very good cross country skier and he's a fantastic finisher. I mean, those are three things you put those together and you're gonna be hard to beat. I was talking to one of my Norwegian friends that I competed with, uh, two or three years ago, it was probably three years ago. And he told me at that time, he's like, Reber will go down as the best Nordic combined skier ever if he doesn't get hurt. And so far that's playing out. I mean, it, it's fun to watch because, well, it's almost not fun to watch because you just know, already know what's going to happen before the event even starts. Yeah. I mean, he's been just dominant, but it's interesting to hear you say that people are, are considering him for possibly the best ever, you know? I, I think already people are having that conversation and, He's still, what is he, 24, 25 years old? So, yeah, so. I mean, he, he could be around for another 10 years doing this. It, it's he, What he's done so far in his career has been special. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the U.S. in, in both disciplines. What's uh, what's your take on, on kind of where we're at in both combined and jumping? Um, I think, you know, obviously we're not where we want to be. Um, but I do think that what they've done – developmentally is going to pay off. I think that um, they've put a lot of effort into um, younger skiers. And I'm not even talking about national team guys. I'm talking about, you know, 14, 15 year olds, the kids that are at the club level and really kind of mobilizing that, that force. And I think that we're going to start seeing the benefits of that here in the next couple of years. I think we've got, you know, for example, in order to combine, um, Malsinski's been skiing at a very high level. He was certainly one of the favorites going into world juniors to get a medal. And if you're at that level, you're, you're a good skier. So I, th I think we're getting there. I think it's, it's going to take a few more years, but I do think um, they've done a, a very good job of kind of mobilizing things at a club level so that we can start producing athletes that have the potential to really um, be world-class. Like when you 
go over to the jump and watch, for example, do you see, are you aware of uh, quite a number of little kids that are interested in jumping? Yeah. I mean, I think, and I might be wrong on this number, but I think they said they had over a hundred kids in the Nordic combined program in steamboat and steamboat alone. And so wow. um, there's just a, a, a whole big group of these kids pushing each other every single day. And I think you're starting to see that across the country as well as you're having these, these younger guys, um, starting to be, you know, compete at, at a higher level. And I think that uh, as long as they manage it correctly, you'll start getting some really good athletes out of that. And that goes for both jumping and Nordic combined. Yeah. And I, I think we have good leadership, USA Nordic, uh, uh, led by uh, Billy DeMong. Uh, I, I think they're really on track, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, that's where Bill's put all his efforts. He can see, you know, yes, we're not where we want to be right now, but at the same time, he's putting his focus on, you know, building himself a pipeline for the future. And I think that, um, that, that we'll start seeing that take place and we'll start seeing those, those younger guys come up and getting onto the world cup here in the next couple of years would be my guess. This has been interesting and, and, and our time now drawing short, but, uh, I, I also wanted to talk to you or ask you, um, I know, uh, the sport of fly fishing is close to your heart. I know that, uh, you have a store, I believe, right? Yeah, I've got one in here in Steamboat, and I've got another one in Utah on the Green River. So we uh, we retail stores and then outfitting. Yep, that's awesome. So my fishing was not like yours; it was mostly with a bobber and a worm uh-huh. uh, in, in a Vermont pond somewhere. But my dad was a fly fisherman, and. Um, there's something about fly fishermen that have always appealed to me. I mean, we've never ever talked about this, so you wouldn't know, but uh, there's a lot of kind of cerebral. I mean, I think it's deeply relaxing on some level, very engaging on another level. So, um, and my guess is you grew up fly fishing, right? I did. I've been fishing as long as I've been skiing. So it was always my other passion and, um, yeah, it's, it's exactly like you just said. It's one of those sports where you can go and time just disappears. You, you don't even know. You start, and next thing you know, you look down at your watch, and five or six hours have gone by, and you don't feel like you've been out there 20 minutes. It's just your mind, especially with fly fishing, just you're so focused on what you're doing that nothing else matters. And, and with that, I, uh, this just came to me. Are there any sort of portents that, like, uh, makes fly fishing a little like ski jumping at all? Are they similar in some ways? I bet you've thought about it. Not really. I mean, they're, they're, they're both okay. cerebral, I guess it would be the closest comparison. I mean, when, with, with ski jumping or with, with fly fishing, you're always learning. You're always learning something new each day that's making you a little bit better. And so I guess that would probably be the closest comparison. Uh, that's cool. Well, I, uh, I really wish you all the best and, and your family and, and with your business and your announcing, I would guess you have your plate pretty full these days. It's pretty full. I mean, between the got three kids at this point, got a, the two, two businesses, a um, couple hundred employees. It's uh, then with the NBC stuff on top, of all that it's, it's, I stay busy. I'm not, I, I go yeah. to bed tired every night. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's a good thing to be. And yeah, uh, you are very much a living legend uh, with your Olympic medals and world championships and and all that you have brought to the sport. So, uh, Johnny, it's really uh, 
I, I would look at my watch and, and time is flying. I just, um, I really thank you for taking the time to uh, uh, talk to us. Oh, no problem. It's been great to talk to you, Peter. And thanks for, yeah. for having me. Yeah, and some nice looking fish up there behind you <laughs> all right buddy thank you very much thank you so that's another edition of ticket to fly uh with johnny spillane uh really great to catch up with him hope you've enjoyed the show everybody and we'll be back soon with another edition of ticket to fly